Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, we're going to be heading up north from you to Nairobi, Kenya, where we're joined for the first time on the show by Lily Guo, who I think goes down. Uh, in a little bit of history in China-Africa studies and the world that we will kind of occupy here, as being the first, at least not dedicated, but the first China first reporter that we know of that actually has China-Africa in her beat. Lily uh, covers East Africa and China in Africa from Nairobi for the online publication Quartz. Uh, before that, she was actually based in Hong Kong, where I spoke with her. And uh, even before that, she was in New York for Reuters and covered uh, Beijing for the Los Angeles Times. So she is really perfect for our show, and we are just thrilled to have you on the program today, Lily. Welcome. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So do you feel kind of honored that you're the first dedicated China-Africa reporter, or actually, I won't even say dedicated, first China-Africa <laughs> reporter with China-Africa in your in your bio? I mean, was that done by, by happenstance, or was that something that you developed an interest while you were working in Hong Kong? Well, it's definitely a really exciting and cool opportunity. And I'd been interested in China and Africa since I kind of since I started covering China. But um, and as you know, because I, I approached you a couple times on stories, um, it's it's really hard to do that from outside the region if you're not, um, you know, coming over and sort of getting on the ground. So I was interested in it in an abstract way, but felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere with it. Um, so when Quartz launched the Quartz Africa, um, which is our Africa focus edition, this spring, it seemed like a really great opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, do that beat more regularly. And once you arrived in Nairobi, um, what? How, how did your your perceptions change? What What were you wrong about, and what were you right about? Um, I'm probably still kind of sussing all of that out, but I mean, so many things. When I just remember leaving Hong Kong and and you know. Uh, discussing with my boyfriend, like, okay, well, we're probably not going to be able to get Sichuan food when we're in Nairobi, so like, let's eat a lot now. We're not going to get like sushi or Korean food, but there's, um, I mean, there's so many, there's so, I mean, aside from Chinese influence, there's just a, lot, just a lot of Asian influence in Nairobi, and I think that that's been a pretty recent development. So in addition to the Chinese, you have a lot of Koreans here and Japanese here, um, and you have um, Chinese here, but and it's not, it's not even just like your regular you know, just like your generic Chinese restaurant in America, there's specific Chinese restaurants. So we have been to a couple of very good Sichuan places and a good hot pot place and stuff like that. Um, and I guess I was also just surprised getting here. I mean, sort of like immediately getting into Nairobi and seeing Chinese people just as you would see Kenyans or other expats in a supermarket or a restaurant. Um, I don't know. I guess I just assumed that it was more, they were more cloistered or they were in certain communities or something. Um, but yeah, lots of things. Well, let's kind of stay with some of the assumptions. As somebody who's now lived in both China and Africa, you have a, a rather unique perspective in terms of your reporting. First, I want to kind of get on the personal side, but then I want to move to the journalism part of it. Um, so it's a two-part question. First, what, were, what do you think are the impressions that p people in China have about Africa that you kind of encountered when you were based out of Hong Kong that are just completely off base. And then now you are in Nairobi. And what do you think their perceptions or misperceptions are of the Chinese that are off base? So when I was in Hong Kong and I, I was telling my Chinese teacher that I was moving to Kenya, the first thing she said was, oh, are you going to need to hire security to follow you around all the time? <laughs> um, 
and you know, obviously that's absurd. And but she, but that was a real impression that you know Africa is just totally. Um, she, she was from um, she was from mainland China, but teaching in Hong Kong. But just the idea that you know everywhere in Africa is war torn, it's very stable, um, uh, and that it's you know just incredibly poor. So that's one idea. But I think that that idea also is changing in China because of because there is so much China um, and Africa. There's so much business, um, so much trade, so much investment, and people going back and forth. That I think that that um, that that impression really is changing, and which is part of why you're getting more migrants coming to the continent. Um, and then in Africa too. I mean, it's uh, I was I had a driver the other day who was asking me, you know, just purely innocently asked, you know, can you um, like do you know martial arts? Like do you know? And he was like, do you know karate? <laughs> um, and do you know? But and it was just really funny because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to be um, rude or anything. He just honestly thought that everybody, that all Chinese people um, were able to, you know, they're all like Tai Chi masters or something. Now, um, as in, now, as in, you are ethnically Chinese, but you're not Chinese. You are, if I understand, you're American. I'm assuming, right? Right. right. Okay. So, so does know, that throw a wrinkle into the, you know, particularly being in, in Kenya where I mean, people may look at you and assume that you are Chinese and then you say you're American, does that actually add another layer of complexity to the discussion? It depends. I mean, some people seem to, some people, I, I, I think that they don't quite understand when I tell them that I'm Chinese, but American also, um, or, you know, ethnically Chinese. And so they'll just, they'll just sort of assume that I'm just Chinese and that I came over from China, even when I say I grew up in North Carolina. Um, but one thing that is funny is that is, I guess maybe because of a language barrier, there are a lot of Chinese here who don't speak English that well. So they're not really communicating that much to the, to the Kenyans. And, and so the same guy that was asking me about my martial arts ability also was like, oh, you're, you know, you're the friendliest Chinese that I've met. I've driven a lot of uh, Chinese guys before and they don't really talk very much and they're kind of shy or very introverted. Um, and I think that's another perception of the Chinese here is that they kind of keep to themselves um, and don't integrate very much. Um, have you in, in, in speaking with Kenyans, um, you know, kind of from in different kind of positions in society, what kind of impressions do you get of their opinions about China and China-Kenya relations? Um, you know, kind of do they, is, is it a situation where they think of this as a problem or is it mostly positive? Um, yeah, you know, kind of how does that break down? Yeah, in Kenya, I'd say it's, in Kenya it is, um, I guess it's kind of, I guess it's a mix. I mean, on some level there is, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, China, a lot of, there's been a Chinese company here, um, China Road and Bridge Group, I think that's the English name. They have built a lot of the roads here. And there's a couple of Chinese companies that are building, um, you know, the skyscraper and just, you know, big sort of infrastructure projects. And everybody knows that, oh, that's a road that the Chinese built, or that's a building, that's a hotel that the Chinese built. And so, um, and and for that all of that, for the most part, is pretty positive. I mean, sometimes you get um, things like, oh, well, you don't want to stay in this apartment complex because it was built by the Chinese, or, you know, this road, you know, the drainage is really bad because it's Chinese built, even though I think I've heard that actually the Chinese, the Chinese company wanted to build the drainage differently, but the Kenyan regulations wouldn't allow them, things like that. Anyway, but, but then on the other side, there seems to also be um, kind of public apprehension towards the, the Chinese. So, so 
the like kind of like what are they doing here and um who are they are they like um engaged in like different types of like low-level crime or poaching and stuff like that and but i can't i'm having trouble kind of um interpreting whether or not that's just something that the media the local media does because it is you know just kind of drums up readership um or if, or if people really think that too um, so could, the Chinese that I've spoken, go well, ahead. You could probably chalk a little bit it up any time there's a new immigrant group. I mean, you right. and I as Americans are now, you know, part of a culture where, you know, immigrants are being pointed out as the boogeyman. You know, I mean, Donald Trump is making a career out of, you know, pointing out that, you know, every problem that Americans have is because of Mexicans crossing the border illegally. And it just seems to me that s- some of it is focused on the Chinese, but some of it may be just you know, immigration and immigration causes stresses in any culture. Right. Cause I've asked, I've asked different Chinese that I've met on sort of the different like groups of them, you know, how do you, f- do you feel like you're targeted or do you feel any sort of prejudice or discrimination? And most say that for the most part, everything that they d- don't really have many negative experiences here. They said that they get targeted by the police more. Um, they sort of get, you know, shaken for bribes more and that there's this idea but that all foreigners Chinese suffer carry. that though. That's not unique to the Chinese yeah. probably. So I think, but I think one, what, what, so the Chinese say that they are uniquely targeted because they say that they, the, the Chinese are more willing to pay a small bribe just to not deal with the problem. Whereas Westerners will be kind of self-righteous and indignant about it and say like, no, take me to the police station. And I don't think there is a real, um, you know, there's a real offense here. So they say that they get um, targeted more because they're more willing to pay. In South Africa, there's also there's another perception that Chinese people tend to keep themselves out of the formal banking system. So there's perceptions that they carry cash, um, and that oh, okay. that that also leads sometimes to to anti-Chinese crime. Yeah, and is that because they don't trust the banking system, or? Yes, there's, you know, there's all kinds of allegations about why. You know, kind of some allegations that that you know, kind of the Chinese community is trying to to not pay taxes, and you know, so I, you know, I I don't know how accurate any of that is. You know, mm-hmm. kind of I think of a lot of it might just be kind of racist rumors, but yes but anyway, no. that, that's that's but, the kind of perception that that's going on. But do you remember from your time in China? You know, every year around Lunar New Year, you know, there's always these stories of, you know, you know, the Chinese kind of going home and then carrying huge wads of cash and getting robbed. And Chinese culture around the world is notorious for keeping vast amounts of cash in houses and keeping gold and other types of things in, as opposed to using the formal banking system, whether that's the hmm. Chinese immigrant community in North America or it's in here in Vietnam or other places. So, I'm, I, you know, there's always a grain of truth to all these stereotypes and caricatures. But, you know, in many parts of the world, the Chinese uh, do tend to prefer to deal in cash. Uh, so that requires them right. to keep a lot of cash on hand, uh, which does right. make them vulnerable. And that's, that's, a, that's a global problem for the Chinese. So I'd imagine it's something that is that they're now people are figuring out like, ah, we have a good shot of trying to get them. Let's talk about the journalism you cover for Quartz. Obviously, you know, we like the fact that you cover China, Africa, but that's only one part of what you're doing. And Quartz, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, is a site that was created by The Atlantic and I assume is still owned and run by The Atlantic. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And The Atlantic is one of the more popular magazines and online publishers in the United States. And they started up this online uh, magazine, this online, well, it really is like an online magazine back in 2012 that has a focus on business and economics. And so when you're covering China-Africa stories, just because that's the focus, obviously, of our discussion, 
I'm curious what the reaction is both from your editors and also what kind of feedback you've received from your readers. And the reason I ask is because when I was based in Paris uh, just a few years ago, and I tried to pitch China Africa stories to my editors at Radio France International and even France 24, France 24, the fights that I got were overwhelming. It was a really tough sell. So I'm curious, what's yeah. the reaction from your editors and what, what have you heard from readers? I mean, I feel like editors and readers almost can't get enough. And, I've, and it's something I've been trying to figure out recently. I was just talking um, uh, with an academic that focuses on Chinese migration and I just was asking her why she thought that there is such interest in China and Africa. And it's and she's not really, and she wasn't really sure either, because it's, um, I mean, it's not even the largest region where it's not even the largest region of Chinese migrants or Chinese investment. But there's something about this relationship. I don't know if it's because it's a South-South thing or it's uh, um, China, which likes to cast itself as this anti-colonial um, power. You know, never, never been a colonizer, always been colonized kind of thing. Even though that's not really true. Um, and now they're in Africa, and it's a you know different way of doing uh, a relationship. Um, but so I think that the reaction has been really positive. I think readers um, seem to be really, I mean, just there seems to be real appetite for stories that explain what's going on. And I, don't, I guess I just find it really fascinating that there's such interest in this topic, but yet there's um, there seems to be such like so many opportunities and so many stories that aren't being told. I mean, there's a lot of good coverage. There's definitely a lot of good coverage, too, of China and Africa, but um, I don't know. It just seems like there's so much more to do. There seems to be a lot of academic research into the area, and so I think maybe the journalism is just catching up. And then also, you know, you have people that are, um, I guess one thing that is lacking is that usually you have either Africa reporters writing, they kind of dip in and do a China-Africa story, or you have a China reporter that kind of jumps in and does, you know, they do, you know, they don't know Africa so well, so they just go in and do a few stories. So it kind of always has that um, one-sidedness depending on who, depending on, you know, where the reporter is from. Where would, would you like to see um, China-Africa journalism expanding to? Like what, what kind of, you know, areas do, do you feel is, is uh, underserved at the moment? I guess the one big one is um, kind of getting at that one-sidedness is that I'm always curious how the two sides so how African businesses are influencing Chinese businesses that are working here. Because right, so part of this like going out policy for Chinese companies um, is that they learn how to become like global, globally competitive companies, and Africa is a good testing ground for that. So you know, what are the lessons that they're learning here? Um, how, are they, how are they being changed by their experience here um, rather than just how is China changing Africa? So that's one area. Another thing that I'm interested in is a different, um, the, well, I guess I, one thing I'm wondering about is, the, is if the Chinese migration that you're seeing in Africa, if it, if it is like the kind of Im Chinese immigration that we've seen everywhere else in the world, I mean, are, 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 are they going to stay permanently? Are they going to have these real communities? Um, so South Africa has like several, like several generations of Chinese. Um, so are we going to see that? elsewhere in Africa. Um, so I'm kind of interested in that. I guess it's kind of early to tell. Um, and then also just the different types of um, Chinese that are coming over. So I've been really interested in different Chinese um, entrepreneurs that are coming and their ideas about doing business here and um, 
I don't know. I just think they're really progressive and they're trying to, they're really aware of the perceptions toward the Chinese and Chinese companies or Chinese ways of doing business. And they're really working to try to change those ideas. You know, it's an interesting point that you bring up because um, a couple weeks ago, Kobus and I, we spoke with uh, Barry Van Wick of the China Africa Reporting Project at Wits University. And one of the distinctions mm-hmm. that he pointed out between some of the international reporting on China, Africa and the local reporting is the, 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 the foreign reporters come in and they do this kind of 10,000 meter view, the big picture, the big story. And, and oftentimes, you know, that encompasses sweeping generalizations. It, by virtue, it has to. And yet a lot mm-hmm. of the local reporting is much more focused on specific events or specific projects or even specific people. So you get much more nuance in the coverage. So I'm going to be very interested to follow some of your coverage because you have a mix of the two. You're based, obviously, in Nairobi, but at the same time report for an international publication. I'll tell you what I want to see more of. And this is some of the reporting that I did when I was in Kinshasa is the human stories. You know, too often it's these abstract notions of China and Africa, which is just, those are useless terms because they're so broad. And I remember, you know, I, I wrote about in Kinshasa, I, I just went into, you know, one of the townships and talked to one of the Chinese shop owners and just heard his story. And they're amazing stories. He came into Kigali, then he moved overland to Goma in eastern DRC, got caught up in the war, and then moved to, to Kinshasa. And you just hear these in, just incredible stories. And through these migratory stories or these individual kind of tales be, from both the African side or the Kenyan side and the Chinese side, we can start to learn more about the bigger picture. And I feel that's what's missing so much, and particularly the Chinese voice which foreign reporters and even a lot of African reporters struggle to kind of break through. So my mm. little kind of pitch to Quartz and to Lily Guo is to hear more of the first-person kind of human stories to tell us, you know, kind of reveal more about the relationship from that pers- perspective. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so my little, put the, the little note Noted. in the suggestion box, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about some of the stories that you've been working on recently and kind of how they, you know, one, Cobus wanted to ask about, you know, this, there's a great story right now that's kind of unfolding who, you know, Hollywood could not have come up with a, a more sinister, evil looking villain if they had to come up with the Ivory Queen. And that's a story that you <laughs> kind of, I mean, she's like right out of a James Bond movie, don't you think? And yeah, she's like a right, Rosa right, only scarier. It's yeah. awesome. Now, again, she has yet to go before a court of law, so we're going to say she's an alleged Ivory Queen, uh, being responsible journalists that we are. Nonetheless, where there's smoke, there may be fire. Uh, this is a story that you've been covering. Tell us a little bit about kind of some of the stories like this that cross your radar and some of the things that you're looking at towards for the future. I mean, poaching is definitely an interesting area because, um, you know, China is supposedly the world's largest consumer of ivory. Um, it goes into traditional Chinese medicine, but then also just, you know, status symbol decorations and things. And then how does that, so how does all that get to China? Like, so there's, I mean, there's always been um, allegations that Chinese businessmen are involved, Chinese, even, even staff at the Chinese embassy in Tanzania um, there was that story, remember, and uh, I think a report last year that supposedly Ivory had been smuggled on President uh, Xi Jinping's plane during his, his two, yes, 2013 yes. state visit, and, and that they, um, that they bought so much that they that they drove up the ivory price in the market. Right, right. So, so I think that I mean, so that story of the the so-called Ivory Queen is interesting because it's um, 
that's one of the few cases where they actually are able to connect if, you know, if she's convicted somebody to the, um, you know, the higher, you know, she's part of the diplomatic business elite. I mean, she came over to Tanzania in sort of that first, like China's first diplomatic push into the region with building the Tanzania-Zambia railway. And she was one of the first, like, translators and graduates of Peking University's program to teach Swahili so that China could come over and, um, you know, try to, like, spread socialist ideology. So I thought that was really interesting. One was one of the questions I had about that story um, and that we're trying to dig into, uh, my coworker in Tanzania who's got good contacts is, I mean, so she's, so she's supposedly the most wanted. Um, she's this ivory queen and, and stuff. But, I mean, I don't think anybody had heard of her before. So I, just, I guess I just wonder how notorious is she really or is that something that the Tanzanian authorities want to kind of drum up to show, like, oh, look how serious we are at cracking down on this. Oh, crap. She made millions of dollars over 30 years. She was sitting there in plain sight. But the truth is she was paying vast amounts of money to people. And, and this shows a little bit of the complicity of the Tanzanian side and the African role in all of this. We always oftentimes look at Africa as the victim here and the China as the kind of aggressor in, in the ivory story, when in fact there's complicity all around. Because when the pigs right. roll around in the mud, everybody gets dirty. And, and that's the thing that I find, you know, so kind of she was there in plain sight. So many people knew what she was doing. They must have for these many years you know, for the volume of ivory that she was moving. So it just is, you know, we can put it all on her, but I think there's enough blame to be going around to lots of different people that she was probably paying off. Right. And what I guess I've also been interested, so there's also a fair amount of young Chinese professionals who have moved to, um, you know, at least to East Africa and are involved in sort of like, uh, you know, civil, like social society, civil society kind of um Initiative. So uh, the China House guys, they've run, they've run these like conservation um, sort of like uh, awareness campaigns and things. And there are other other Chinese that are also doing that in the region. And so I think that's kind of an interesting counterpoint um, as the amount of Chinese that are actually campaigning against poaching. So you feel that the China House um, anti-poaching campaigns, are they, do you feel they're actually getting some effect? They're actually changing perceptions a little bit on the ground? Well, I don't know if they're changing any perceptions here among uh, locals about whether or not the Chinese are involved in poaching. Um, I think that's a pretty common view. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, uh, not folklore, but just something that everybody says. So they say like, oh, well, this region, you know, uh, the, so animals are being poached more here. It's because the Chinese are near, you know, the Chinese, like even just Chinese workers um, like state-owned company workers, they'll blame it on them too. And I think that, and it's because there have been cases where they found um, meat in, you know, these in people's like dormitories and things. But I guess the comparison, the analogy that you could make is the sort of a like change in thinking in China among young people towards shark fin and shark fin soup. So if these young people, young Chinese, are successful at, you know, talking about you know, poaching and conservation and stuff, then, you know, maybe they can start to change views um, and change the demand side of it. Lily Guo is one of the correspondents in Africa for Quartz, the online publication brought to you by The Atlantic. She covers East Africa and China in Africa from Nairobi, uh, an excellent reporter and one that I just really enjoy uh, following. 
Listen, Quartz has a lot of great coverage, but in particular, they've launched Quartz Africa, and they produce this amazing newsletter that goes out every week. Uh, are you involved in that newsletter? Because I just that's one of the best African newsletters that uh, African newsletters that I've seen. Uh, and if you can you can sign up for it, I think on the Quartz Africa website. Is that correct? Yes, okay. please do. It is really, it's just a summary from all different sources, not just Quartz. And you can follow, of course, uh, Lily's reporting on Quartz and also on Twitter, uh, where you put links to a lot of your stories. If people want to follow you on Twitter, what's the best way for them to, to find you? Oh, it's, so my handle is just at Lil Quo, L-I-L-K-U-O. Excellent. And the website is qz.com. And if you just type in Lily Guo, you'll find a list of all her, her stories that are there. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And we run this kind of news aggregation service on Facebook, where if you sign up, then you get the steady stream, 24 hours a day stream of new China Africa news. It's pretty hardcore. Um, and I'm also on, yeah, I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. In addition to our 24-hour stream of China Africa news on Facebook, we also have a newsletter, not quite as robust as the Quartz newsletter, but nonetheless, it's still... Uh, a little taste of the China Africa news of the week. It goes out every Monday. Go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com or you can sign up on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. Uh, there we give you four or five of the top China Africa stories, including a lot of Lily's reporting on the subject. So uh, we really hope you'll sign up for that. And if you want to follow this podcast, there are so many different ways to listen to it. Uh, we are on all the mobile apps, uh, Android and uh, and iOS. You can just look for us in the, in the various stores. And of course, the best way is just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa, and there you'll find us right there. And we would be so incredibly grateful if you could leave us a rating or a comment because it makes it easier for other people to find the show in the future. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>